he never introduced himself by name and and then he excused himself and there i was i was now communicating with somebody from the kgb and this is how our relationship started this is cold war conversations if you're new here you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand cold war history accounts do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com If you've seen the TV drama series The Americans, you will be fascinated by this episode. Albrecht Dietrich was an East German graduate student and a true believer in the communist cause when he was recruited by the KGB in 1970. He spent 10 years as an undercover agent in the United States. He is the longest surviving known member of the KGB illegals program that operated during the Cold War. In this episode we talk about his early life in East Germany as well as his recruitment and training in Berlin and Moscow. It's an amazing insight into the mind and personality of a secret agent and the immense pressures that he was under in the 10 years that he served his KGB masters. If you can spare it, I'm asking listeners to contribute at least three US dollars per month to help keep us on the air. Larger amounts are always welcome. Plus, you can get a sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster as a monthly financial supporter. You also bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I am delighted to welcome Jack Barsky to our Cold War conversation. So my first memories are like, I was about six, seven years old, because I know where I was and I knew when I was there in terms of uh, where we lived. And that was already uh, 10, 10 years after the end of World War II. And I tell you, we were still dirt poor. I grew up in the country in a, in a village that uh, had about, at the time, maybe 1,500 people lived there. Uh, and then later on, we moved to a small city with about 5,000 people. So there wasn't a lot of, you know, big time civilization around us, <clears throat> which wasn't all bad because uh, my parents uh, knew a lot of farmers. And so when the food was in short supply, there was always a way to get some. So I remember, for instance, this, that occurred to me just recently that my, my, my parents, they had a garden and, and, and uh, we had rabbits and chickens, even though they were both teachers, okay? And we lived in a school building on the top floor, uh, which was a plus because we, at least we had really good shelter. But, but everybody who could and, and who lived in the country had uh, some animals that uh, you, you could eventually eat or whatever they make. So I, I remember that my, my father meticulously, we had five chickens, meticulously uh, kept track of which hen laid what egg when. That means the single egg was important. And I do remember, this is secondhand noted uh, memory, is my mother told me that before I can remember that occasionally she made a meal for the three of us before my brother was born from one egg. I I hate to think what 
she added <laughs> to that egg. Uh, um, and and there was one one other uh, such uh, one other episode that indicates how difficult uh, it was in terms of you know getting enough food on the table. I must have been about eight nine years old, so we're talking about uh, 1957, 56, 57, when I lost a wallet with all our food rationing stamps in it. Wow. And uh, those stamps, uh, they didn't have a name on them, so anybody who found them could have used them and we would have had not we would have had no ability to buy the basics like milk butter flour uh, some meat so poverty was all around us and and quite frankly we didn't know that we were poor at least the the kids because everybody was poor one other thing in terms of of, uh, food i don't remember ever having gone to bed hungry Somehow they always managed to stuff something into my mouth, but I also don't remember any favorite foods in those of those days. Anything that really tasted good, I just remember a lot of things that I hated. And and I have a picture uh, of myself when I was about uh, like uh, twelve years old, and I started growing, and I look extremely thin. And when, when I uh, shared this with a friend of mine, uh, after many, many years, we met again, and he said, Yo, well, don't you know it? We were, we were called potato babies. We were all thin like that because um, uh, our primary nutrition was fundamentally potatoes. Yeah, yeah. And I think there was a big fear of the Colorado beetle in the GDR at that time as well, wasn't there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember that one. We, I don't know if we actually went out... Uh, uh, to uh, pluck them off with the potato plants. I, I, I think we did. Yeah, yeah. And your, your parents as, as teachers, were they in quite a privileged position? Were they well paid? Uh, based on what I've been told, yes. Uh, they, uh, this is one thing that the party and the regime in East Germany did right in terms of you know preparing for the future. They took care of the teachers. First of all, they threw everybody out who had any connection with the Nazi regime. So now they needed, they needed a ton of new teachers. And so they pulled them out of, uh, you know, anybody who had some kind of education, they would be trained. Uh, the, uh, uh, the German term was Neulehrer. That, that means, uh, you know, brand new teachers. And they didn't get a lot of training, would be trained for about six months and then uh, let loose on the students. But they were fundamentally at least... Uh, ideologically screened okay so so and this is this is where you prepare the next generation this is where you prepare for the longevity of the regime that you're setting up work pretty well because you know the teachers that taught me down the road towed the party line that's for sure right and your your parents were members of the sed were they uh, my father was, my mother was not. Uh, my mother was uh, a little bit rebellious and she kept it under her breath. She, she really, really didn't buy into a lot of the communist propaganda, but based on, you know, my, my father's career ambitions and, uh, and, and him having joined, initially he joined the, the Socialist Party and then by default when they joined with the communists, he became a member of the SED. She, she kept quiet but uh, see, my mother grew up in a in a in a Christian home, 
she never really told me about it, but think about, think about the following. She had two sisters. The three of them were named Ruth, Eva, and Judith. Three biblical names, yeah. okay? And, and she also told me that for a while she sang in the church choir. And then she had to leave the church choir because dad, uh, you know, was uh, because of the career ambition. He, be he became eventually the principal of a middle school. So we did well. My, as a matter of fact, my father was the first one in the village to have a motorcycle. And then he was the first one in the next uh, town, the first one to have a car. Okay, so we, we did well, much better than uh, most everybody else. Right. Right. And, and how did you get on at school? Did you enjoy school? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, like uh, the break when, when we, uh, one of the kids always brought a ball and we were chasing the, the ball on, 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 in, the, in the schoolyard. Uh, learning was boring. I was not challenged enough. Even even up to high school, you know, I was quite rebellious because, you know, it was too slow and I was challenging the teachers and I, I almost got kicked out of high school for being just a troublemaker with my mouth, nothing else. When the challenge started in my first semester in college, when we were, you know, we were really, really confronted with meat. Up until then, it was just a breeze of walk in the park. Right, right. And how about the uh, the Tailman Pioneers? How was that for you? Oh, yeah, well, we had to join. Uh, I was really proud. You know, you had this, this kerchief that whatever that, that band, what do you call this thing? that uh, uh, The scarf. That scarf, you know, like a yeah. scarf, yeah. You, you, had, uh, you had to, like, tie it in a certain way. It was a blue, mm -hmm. and the uniform was a, a, a white shirt, and then you put that blue thing over. It looked pretty neat. Uh, everybody had it, uh, except for a couple of outliers. And they were all looked at like, uh, why aren't you with the program? It, it, it was unusual not to be a member of the Young Pioneers. And it was also unusually unusual not to then graduate to become a member of the FDJ, the Free German Youth Movement with and that uniform uh, was a blue shirt we didn't like wearing the blue shirt for some reason even though if i had one like this today i would gladly wear it because they weren't even ugly no it, it's interesting because obviously all, all of this and i'm sort of jumping ahead a little bit here but all of this information would have been in your file before and presumably would have been looked at before you were recruited into uh, or, or had not to been, had to have been otherwise uh, otherwise there wouldn't have been an attempt to recruit me recruit me uh one of the uh prerequisites or requirements for to recruit somebody for work in enemy territory in the west was that you couldn't have relatives or friends in the west so so you they had to know this about me they also had to know about you know, my, my, my academic record and so forth. And uh, yeah, clearly everybody had a file. Interestingly enough, when Der Spiegel researched me, they were looking for a Stasi file, couldn't find it. I bet you it was purged the moment the KGB took over. They pulled it. When I uh, resigned from the KGB, 
and, and, and I gave him as a reason that I had contracted HIV AIDS and uh, that in those days was, was a death sentence. And so they, they bought it, they believed it. They told my German family that uh, I already died. And uh, as a matter of fact, the social security register in Germany uh, has an entry that Albrecht Dietrich, that's my birth name, is dead. Right, right, and we'll 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 come to that in in a moment. Now, you you must have done reasonably well academically because you made it to university. Uh, reasonably well, yeah. I, I graduated uh, with all A's from high school, and that's already high school is different from the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, only the top ten percent of the students uh, even managed to get to high school. So, and, and, you know, I came out with all A's and at university, it got even better. I mean, I got, uh, I got a national scholarship, which, uh, that Karl Marx scholarship, which paid me as much, by the way, as my first salary when I was an employee uh, at the university as an assistant professor. And that, that scholarship was uh, given out to about 60 students per year in the entire country. So, uh, that sort of made me a standout and probably triggered the the recruitment. As you probably know, the KGB was able to always recruit from the top, the same way that the CIA had, had a history of recruiting out of Ivy League. When I spoke to you a few days ago, you were talking about university and you the uh, primitive facilities that you had there. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, we, we had no clue that they were primitive the same way we had no clue that we were poor. Uh, that ramshackle building that uh, I did my uh, research for, my uh, for the diploma, uh, when I reconnected with somebody who actually worked there and he, and he had written uh, that, down memories and, and described what it was like, and I said, oh my God, that's true. You know, there was one phone in the building and uh, uh, the, the roof was about to cave in. Uh, the heating and the, uh, there was no cooling in the summer and the, and the heating occasionally malfunctioned. I mean, it was a wreck. And yet we, we didn't know any better. Uh, we were also not really well equipped with regard to, you know, uh, instrumentation. When somebody one day came back from the West with a first computer, we were all staring at this and, oh my God, what is that? So we, we were like operating with very basic tools. That's all we knew, uh, with the exception of those who eventually occasionally uh, were allowed to uh, make some trips, uh, trips on the other side of the Iron Curtain, but uh, students weren't, were not allowed. So right. that, it, 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 it was pretty horrible. And also and- the food... The cafeteria food was terrible too. And how how much Western TV were you watching? Did you did you watch much Western TV or have much exposure to it? Zero point zero zero one. And the the one comes uh, came in when I visited a friend who uh, who lived in an area where you could receive Western TV. I I lived in in the area that was called, uh, translated, uh, the Valley of the Clueless. Or, uh, we could not, unless you, you mounted a monstrous antenna that would have been visible to everybody, including the Stasi. You, you just 
my father ruminated about it and then he, he dropped the idea. So anyway, at my friend's house, they had West German TV and I still remember what I watched. What It was the, the Flintstones. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. And what what's the German name for the Flintstones? Die Feuersteine. That's a <laughs> straight translation. Yeah, yeah. And what did you make of that? What did you make of that US cartoon? Oh, it, it was funny. It was good. Now, mind you, uh, we also had some pretty good imports coming out of uh, Hungary and the Soviet Union. They had had some very nice cartoons. Uh, so th- that was not necessarily something that would have attracted me to the West. <laughs> How were you first contacted by the KGB? Yeah, that was an odd, awkward contact with, the. believe it or not, the only individual who I ever met, uh, as far as KGB is concerned, who I didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was sitting in my dorm room on a Saturday afternoon um, doing some studying, uh, and there's a knock on the door. Now you got to understand the culture in those days in a dorm. Uh, if there, if it was another occupant of the dorm, the knock would just mean I'm coming in, right? So, and they would just open the door and come in. Nobody came in, and I didn't say come in. And after about ten seconds, I knew that there was somebody. It was a rare visitor from the outside. We didn't. We barely got outsiders to come visit us. So I told the fellow to come in. He came in, never met this guy before. He was um, a short fellow and had one of his hands in a in a cast that I remember. And he had a sort of what I still call a weasel face. You know, he just looked like odd uh, and, and entirely unimpressive. So he, he introduced himself as a uh, employee of Carl Zeiss Jena, which was and still is uh, an optics uh, company that was and is still known worldwide. They had a, a, a part of it was in West Germany and part of it was in Jena in East Germany. And he just wanted to talk with me about my plans after I graduated. I was in my third year, finishing my third year. And, and that was an idiotic, odd question. The guy really did a lousy job covering for what he really was after. Because uh, in, in those days, after you graduate, you got assigned. I really don't know how they did it, but they assigned people. You go there, you go there, you go there. And these were not necessarily for chemistry students. These were not necessarily nice places to live. All of them. Uh, as you know, in East Germany, there was they really didn't care about the environment. Uh, there was pollution everywhere. So anyway, so so this guy had a, a clearly uh, his his cover story was just really bad. I mean, he he would have failed espionage one hundred and one. <laughs> he he was German. Uh, there was no accent. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week.
to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Uh, and, you know, we I already figured once he introduced himself, I figured he's probably Stasi, uh, East German secret police. Mm. That didn't scare me because I was in good standing. Uh, the little joke, that the practical joke that we played to uh, treat a... Uh, an ice cream shop with uh, with tear gas went uh, unpunished because we removed ourselves uh, before anybody could figure out that we were doing no good. So, so I had no problem with the police or anybody. So I figured, you know, this is a recruiting effort. And I was right. And so I just played ball. I just wanted to see, you know, where that's going. And we talked for 15 minutes maybe about you know how tough it is to study and what i like about the city blah 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 uh, and eventually out of nowhere he changed his tune saying well i'm really not from the government i just like use that to to warm warm up the conversation he said i'm not from college size i'm actually from the government <laughs> so it, immediately you know my mischievous self uh, was thinking but i didn't say it to ask him, so what part of the government are you from? <laughs> Which would have, you know, backed him into some kind of a corner. So I didn't let it go. I said, so we talked about a little more, and then he popped the question. The only question he he was uh, he had, was interested in getting an answer to, and that was, could you envision yourself one day working for the government? This is another one of those odd questions. You just really didn't apply work for the government and this was not voluntary a particular career might have might might have led you into this like you know party membership and and leading role in the party and the youth movement and what have you and so i knew again what this was about i said sure but not as a chemist and so we were communicating fundamentally between the lines i answered the question he didn't ask and that's what he what all he, what he wanted to hear was fundamentally, would I be interested in joining the Stasi? And I said, not as a chemist. So this was this would have left open internal type an internal type of job, which I would have declined. Uh, and uh, and the other one was this glamorous espionage thing. And uh, so we we parted company. And he invited me to the number one restaurant in town a week later. And uh, as I show up there, it was a mid-afternoon. He's sitting in the in the back in a corner, and there's another fellow sitting at the same table. So I didn't quite know whether it was okay to approach him because the the custom in those days in, in East Germany was uh, you grab any kind of chair regardless of whether somebody else sits at the table. You just say is this is this seat available and you know people would just let strangers sit at, and at the same table and so I, and i you know ambled very slowly in that in his direction but he got up and it meant it was okay uh he and then he introduced uh, 
his uh, companion, and he said, this is my friend Herman. He called him Herman, uh, not German, which is the Russian version. <laughs> and, uh, and then he said, we were working with the KGB. And then he, you know, he never introduced himself by name. And, and then he excused himself. And there I was. I was now communicating with somebody from the KGB. And this is how our relationship started. Wow. And so did you see the, the weasel face guy after that? Or was that it? Your only contact was with Herman? Ne- never again. It was only Herman. During my time in Yenna, nobody else. Nobody else. Uh, and Weasel Face it just disappeared. I didn't say anything bad about him either. I didn't see any reason to, you know, but give him a bad mark for for being a lousy spy. Yeah, yeah. And so, did, did Herman I- explain more as to what they were looking for? Not right away. N- not at all. Now, here's the thing, you know. I'm I'm not very slow when it comes to uh, assessing a situation. Immediately when I when I heard KGB, I knew it wasn't internal. You know, they wouldn't hire a German to do uh, to to to, to uh, uh, control their own dissidents, so to speak. So that was espionage. So that was that was unspoken, and I knew that this came out in dribs and drabs as we were meeting there was a lot of socializing friendship building he got to know me i got to know him and it slowly then he would give me some tasks to do uh and i i was uh, early I, i was always very honest i told him what i don't like what why i'm not good i i still remember one time that i was complaining that you know, I had a hard time with girls, <laughs> and and he uh, he encouraged me. He said, "You know, they want the same thing as you do. They, they want a guy, so don't don't worry about it. You'll you'll find somebody." Uh, so this this was uh, you know it, it it became a real friendship. The the other thing that uh, he gave me early on was West German magazines to read. Ironically, one of them being Der Spiegel which ran a feature about me four years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, and that was, that was it uh, during my time in Jena. Initially, we met in a car, but then uh, he had somehow uh, acquired a, uh, a conspirational apartment uh, that was occupied by a single uh, female party member who would leave uh, tea and cookies when we showed up and then disappear for about an hour. Uh, And that was it. My meeting with anybody but Herman took about 18 months to uh, materialize. And that is when I was actively recruited. For the first time, somebody said, okay, so are you going to play ball? Whatever he said, it wasn't Russian. The guy didn't speak German. Uh, or, 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 or can we count on you? Whatever it was, it was a it was a very aggressive, hard question for which I wasn't prepared. By the way, that was in Berlin, in uh, at uh, headquarters in Berlin, Karlshorst, where the 
Soviet Army had its headquarters, mm-hmm. and the KGB was there, also had their main post there. And uh, I wasn't, I wasn't ready for that question, so I gave a sort of a weasel answer. <laughs> I told him, "Well, I, you know, I'm not ready. I, I need, I need training. I need to learn how to drive a car." And for some odd reason, I also said, "I need to learn how to type," which fun- fundamentally was prophetic because. I did learn how to type uh, in my spare time when I first was in, uh, uh, came to the U.S. Uh, helped me greatly in programming and helped me quite a bit uh, as an author and a, a blogger. So anyway, it's a stupid thing to say, but, you know, he, he didn't mind. Uh, he said, what well, he cut me off and he said, we'll do all the training. We just need, I need an answer and I need, I need that by tomorrow. And that made for a rather sleepless night because... Uh, I really liked the standing that I had in the university town in Jena. I I was part of the uh, of the section chemistry leadership. I was the student representative, and so I took place in these high level meetings where all the professors sat, and and I was the number one student as far as grades was concerned. And I played basketball, and I loved that. It was all really good. The only thing that, that was missing uh, was a steady girlfriend. And I tell you what, if I had had a steady girlfriend at that time, somebody who I would have wanted to uh, spend my life with, I probably would have said no. There's a good friend of mine who, uh, who just published his memoir. Uh, it's called The Forger, Der Fälscher in German. He wound up uh, heading the forgery department for the Stasi. Anyway, he was approached to, for, uh, to do uh, undercover work in West Germany, and he had a steady girlfriend at the time. He was just as adventurous as me, uh, arguably brighter. Uh, he would have done a good job, but, you know, he, he said no. Uh, and, and my decision, it, it was a close one because of all the things that kept me in here. You know, to me, that was my hometown. I... I never looked back at, uh, at the two villages I grew up in. So Jena was it. And, and I could have, I could have, I saw myself spending the rest of my life there, but there was nothing that held me, no personal relationship. The other thing that could have held me would have been if my mother and I had had a, an emotional bond, which we didn't have. Mm-hmm. So it was probably 51 to join and 49 uh, to stay back. And so after, as I said, a sleepless night and uh, some ruminations, and I said, okay, let's go. I'm in. Wow. Wow. Yeah, this could have been a very short chat if you'd made the other decision. Yeah. And typically people ask the question, was it okay to say no at the time? The answer is quite, quite clearly 100% yes, it would have been okay because you don't press an unwilling individual in this into this kind of a job. They need to come voluntarily. They need to uh, buy into this uh, and they need to own the decision because there was a good chance that jail was going to be in my future. And I would have, as you know, I, I, I cut all links that I had with my German past, including, you know, friends, family, what have you. 
Uh, so no, you don't, you don't, and you don't punish somebody for saying no, because it's a good thing if, if you, if, if they determine that uh, it's not for them, that pretty much indicates that they wouldn't be a good spy anyway. Yeah, yeah, because you talk quite a bit about the psychology and that that uh, personality fitting the role. And if it's not the right personality, then there's no amount of training is going to fix that. That's exactly right. And, and I think, as I indicated before, uh, they did very little training with regard to, uh, you know, your personality development. They figured I had what it takes to do what needs to be done. I had no, no clue. I had no clue what they were looking for. I was just being me. Turns out in hindsight, yeah, they knew who they were recruiting. And uh, when I finally uh, signed up with, with the KD, KGB, I had one year of uh, employment at the university behind me. And I felt flattered to have the attention of uh, what I knew then must have been the most powerful single organization on the planet. And it was probably not that uh, that far off. And were they doing like tests with you? Did they ask you to do certain tasks to yeah, test yeah, your yeah, ability? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Some, not a whole lot, but uh, uh, you know, I had to do, go and find out some information from people who I didn't know uh, using a cover story, recon- reconnoiter a. a uh, a facility to tell them what was what, what was going on in there. One time, they actually uh, chauffeured me to a hotel to the, to the a bigger city where they had a visitor from the west, uh, and they managed to you know sort of place me next to this guy in, in a bar and to you know you know talk to him and find out some things that kind of stuff. But most of it was just getting together and talking. And, uh, and I, I now understand because based on w- what I've been told, uh, the, uh, the person who actually saw with his own eyes the, uh, the files that were kept on me in Moscow, uh, there were like, I think five large folders that means probably there was one folder where the, the fellow who uh, maintained relationship with me wrote a report every time after he met me. So it, it was just getting to know me and, and, and uh, uh, sizing up whether I might be the right material to, to be trusted and I have all the, the wherewithal to operate as a lone wolf uh, undercover agent uh, in another country because there's a lot of people who can't do this. And it's, it, it is what it is. You know, there's a lot of a lot of things that are required, and it's not necessarily just being smart. It's being street smart. It's being self-reliant. It's being uh, highly risk tolerant, and on and on and on. Yeah, I mean, it's huge mental pressure, which I think we'll 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 come on to um, in a little while. I understand that in in East Germany spies for east germany weren't called spies they had another name no they were uh, called kundschafter des friedens that means uh, scout for peace or something like that 
<laughs> and, I like I, li- I like the sort of double speak there. <laughs> <laughs> and they were highly romanticized. I mean, it, it was like it, these were the, the the folks that were fighting uh, the war on the invisible front, fighting the Nazis, fighting the uh, forces in the West that uh, were going to undo the uh, result of World War II and on and on. And on top of it, they got to live the good life, you know, that just came, that came as part of the, you know, part of the, the package. And to be uh, recruited into that kind of life was like, whoa, dude, that's really cool. <laughs> so was there an equivalent of like James Bond on East German TV or East German films? Yes, there, what, what... Yes, there was. Uh, and uh, the fellow who was the... Uh, the uh, main actor in this, the, I think he's still alive. His name is Armin Müller Stahl, uh, who, who did quite a bit of uh, acting after the uh, after the wall came down uh, in, in, uh, on American screens in Hollywood. Yeah, I'm familiar with him. He was in Music Box with Jessica Lang, I think. Mm-hmm. He was one of those scouts for peace, and uh, uh, the series was called Das. Unsichtbare Visier, the the uh, invisible visor. Uh, they trickled it out. Uh, they had uh, a, a part of it. It was a sort of a mini series, but it came once a year, and everybody was always waiting for it around Christmas time. <laughs> wow! Wow! So, I mean, you must have fully believed in the socialist ideal at this point and you fully believe that what you were doing was going to be best for your country and the best for socialism uh, yes sir but <clears throat> i must admit now the belief was not very deep uh i didn't really really dig if i had dug maybe i would have found that there are some issues here let's just start with one thing and i i, I have to bring that up the uh one of the basic tenets of uh of Marxism is, uh, you know, a socialist, a communist society is uh, run by the principle, uh, and I'm I'm quoting from memory, from everybody according to their ability to everybody according to their needs. Now, the moment you start thinking about it, what does that mean? Who decides what I need and what you can contribute? Uh, and at that point, we're talking about some kind of a hierarchical system with a party on top. And me having always been a contrarian and sort of a libertarian at heart, I wouldn't have liked that. But, you know, then again, if you're a member of the party on top, you know, you might actually like it because you still have the freedom that you want. So, so again, my belief was, was sort of skin deep. I was just when I went with the flow. Right, right. And also the age you were, the chance of being a secret agent is oh. <clears throat> sort of a dream come true, I guess. You bet. You know, the ability to travel. You know, I, I, I read uh, in, in my uh, senior year in high school and then even in, in, in my first couple of years in college, uh, I got hooked on a French novelist named Balzac. Ono, ono, ono de Balzac. And he, he wrote lots and lots of books. And I read every one of them that was available in German translation. And I really wanted to go see Paris. 
you know. <laughs> mm. What year are we talking about now that we've we've got to in, in, in your story when, when you are signed up to the KGB? Okay, I signed up, uh, you know, when, when I, I, I quit the university, uh, 74, two years training in Berlin, that brings me to 76, and then two years in Moscow brings me to 78. And I was launched to the United States in 70, 78. I arrived in New York City in the fall, a uh, couple of days prior to uh, Columbus Day. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was when you were in Berlin doing training, they sent you on a training mission to West Berlin. Can you just tell me what that was like? Right, it was actually a two-part training mission. The first, the first day, the first part was just go there. And they gave me a route to take, you know, places to visit. There weren't too many. Take the subway because that's how you could uh, get into West Berlin without the Western forces knowing. Uh, I was uh, smuggled through a, uh, a border uh, control station where only, only the KGB uh, was checking. As I emerged from the bottom of the subway got, got up uh, and looked out and I was in the West. The first thing I noticed, oh my God, it's very colorful. I mean, as you most likely know, the prevailing colors in East German architecture were brown and gray. Uh, with the, the one spot that had color was their Alexanderplatz, which is right next to where, uh, it's still their Alexanderplatz, and it's right next to the, the, the television tower. Mm-hmm. Everything else was just brown and gray. And, and in, in the West, they had all kinds of different colors. And, and the cops, initially, I, I couldn't find them because they had these light blue uniforms, very pleasant uniforms. So uh, that was that. Uh, I, I was a bit hesitant, a little tight, because, you know, I was, go- I was traveling with my own passport. Uh, the passport had a stamp uh, uh, it, it issued that I was allowed to enter the West. But I was afraid somebody might stop me and ask me, what are you doing here? I forgot. I must have had a cover story. Yeah, because, I mean, somebody of your age in West Berlin on an East German passport would have been highly unusual. Right. Highly unusual. Uh, so I managed to get through. I, uh, they gave me a, a, a few marks to spend, maybe 10. So at one point I stopped at, uh, at one of those uh, stands where they sell the, uh, uh, the, the famed curry borst. Uh, it's a curry sausage that, I don't know if anybody but Berliners can make it as good. And I had a beer and it was really tasty. And that was the end of it. Part two, next day, they sent me out again. And they gave me an address of an elderly couple. Uh, and the task was for me to ring their doorbell and uh, find out information about a relative son, I guess, uh, they had in West Germany. So that was uh, sort of an inquiry, undercover inquiry. That went well. You know, they let me in and uh, I gave him some kind of a fictionary, a, a better cover story than the fellow who first uh, uh, approached me, Weasel Face, because it, because it 
it worked. You know, in those days I had a full beard and I told him that I, I was a student at the Free University in West Germany. And I just wanted to talk uh, about with them about some things of the past I'm doing study about, you know, history or something. Worked really well. And and that was an important uh, uh, two-day uh, trip simply because they had to make sure that I can... I, my psychology was such that I wouldn't be intimidated working on the other in the other part of the world because and I know this for a fact because accidentally I met a classmate a high school classmate of mine in Berlin in a restaurant and we talked a little bit and then he opened up and he said you know what the Stasi wanted me to go as a Kundschafter as a as, a, as an undercover agent into West Germany and I had to tell him I can't do it uh, because when I when I went on my first trip to West Berlin, I got scared out of my mind. So I went right back and I said that that's not for me. Well, guess what? At that point, it was too late to say no without being punished because he he was an engineer. He had graduated uh, from 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 college as an engineer he was blocked from getting a job in his profession. So he, even today, he is running a little small, a little small business selling model railroads. Yep. So he got punished big time. Yeah. yeah. That's really interesting. You know, hear, hearing about that training exercise, you, you were presumably trailed right the way through that. That, that I don't know. It's a good possibility. That thought never crossed my mind. Yeah. I trusted them blindly. They, they may have they may have done a bunch of things to really, you know, check on me, check on the veracity of what I was telling them. I bet you they did. I didn't care. Yeah, because the old couple you spoke to might have already been in their employ and were just acting out just to see how you would try and get that information. I guess I don't know. Yeah, that too possible. Yeah, yeah I, I had similar tests in in Jena. That's a that's a good possibility. Uh, again, you know, I was naive, and uh, I was just like totally brutally honest. I told them everything, except the incident with the tear gas. <laughs> I kept <laughs> yeah. that to myself. Probably wise to leave that one out. <laughs> I just want to talk a little bit about your 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 time in Moscow because I think you wanted to share some <clears throat> views of your experiences there. But Moscow is where you're given more intensive training around how you were going to communicate evading surveillance and all the the sort of tradecraft that you'd need. Well, obviously in Moscow they they had the best of the best in terms of uh tradecraft. Uh so my my counter surveillance training was as good as it gets that was we spent a lot of time on that uh this by the way gave me reasonable certainty that when 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 the kgb indicated that the fbi was probably on on my case that the kgb was wrong and and they were wrong and i know this for a fact now but anyway that's that's a sidebar uh the reason that they uh, moved me to Moscow was that in Berlin they didn't have a trusted native speaker, uh, trusted um, uh, native speaker of American English. 
at the time they figured that I had enough talent to uh, get to a point that I can shed most of my German accent to credibly claim that I was born in the U.S. And so that's that's why I was in Moscow. I had a tutor there, was an American citizen who had uh, emigrated to to Russia. And uh, I also worked with uh, the somewhat famous, at least in the circles who are interested in espionage, uh, the, the Cohens, uh, Morris and Lana Cohen, who uh, trained me not so much operationally, but with regard to what it's like to be an American and uh, what it's like to actually be an agent, an undercover agent, because all the others that trained me didn't know anything about that. The the Coens are probably better known to British listeners as the Krogers. I found out much later that they actually were the Coens, yes. <laughs> yeah, and they're, they're famously known in the UK as being part of the Portland spy ring. Correct. Which centred around the naval base in in southern England. So, what what were the Krogers like? Can you just tell me about the you know the first time you, you met with them? Because they are very legendary, deep cover illegal or illegals as far as espionage history is concerned. Well, so I I was taken to their apartment, and it was like when when my handler, my liaison, came to me with the exciting news. He says, "We got permission to." To, for you to meet Peter and Helen, and he would, who are Peter and Helen? Well, I can't, I can't tell you anything about, but they're Americans. So he took me to their uh, apartment. The door was opened, and my my guy stayed outside. He handed me over, and the reception was just absolutely wonderful, lovely people, and very quickly. They, uh, Peter particularly, he was a chatterbox, told me exactly where he was from, fundamentally what they did. So <laughs> there, there went the secrecy. You know, Morris was actually recruited by, uh, while he was serving in the international brigades in the Civil War in, in Spain. You know, when, there's one thing about an agent when they, when they are free of the constraints and to keep things secret, we go we go way to the extreme on the other side and overshare. <laughs> so lovely people, wonderful, friendly, you know, and, and I think they were very happy to meet me because, you know, I, I was going to, they're, they're handing the torch to me. They were still 1,000% communist, period. Morris uh, had taught himself uh, some Russian, and one day he read in the, party newspaper, Pravda, that the Soviet Union had some plans to uh, make bread available free of charge. And he was so excited. He said it was communism, full-blown communism just around the corner, uh, when in fact bread was already so cheap that it, that wouldn't have made a difference to begin with. Um, <laughs> and uh, and uh, just, just the whole, you know, like little children, who get a piece of candy and it make them really happy. I understand based on some interviews that they gave just very close to death that they had some doubts about maybe having been unpatriotic and uh, betraying their own country. Uh, but uh, I think they left this earth still believing communists. And, uh, you know, living in Moscow for many years, I think they spent about 15 years or so before they passed, 
didn't help them much because they weren't never they were never integrated in society. They were they lived in a nice flat and were catered to, you know, people did the shopping for them and all that. So uh, they were hardcore communists, uh, but lovely, lovely people. And I keep on telling people that's a that's a, my uh, primary example of how what you would think are internally really good people can do a lot of bad things based on ideology, based on, uh, you know, uh, sort of marching orders that you have internalized that you don't know that they're wrong. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think you, you shared with me that as a measure of how nice they were, you would have trusted them to have after your children or managed your money i think was absolutely. what you described absolutely absolutely 100 percent trustworthy and that's why that's one of the the things that made them such good agents for, for the kgb because they willingly went to jail and you know i went into that business too knowing that i could go to jail and up until a certain point you know i would i would have been it would have been pretty hard to turn me had the, the FBI found me before I had a child in this country. Okay. Uh, yeah. That changed the equation completely. Uh, but if, if I, if I'm still single, so I'm let's say eight years into my assignment and, and they find me, I, I don't think I, I don't think I would have, uh, I would have uh, signed up to save my skin. The, one of the reasons being that the promise was, and it was explicit, that if they if they get you, we're going to get you out. And that and so it, so that was actually said directly to you. Yes, yes. Right. And there there were plenty of examples, and uh, the Krogers being two of them, they spent eight years in jail, and until the KGB finally managed to uh, probably frame and a British businessman, and then they they managed to exchange him and get him out of jail. I saw pictures of them coming home. I mean, they were all smiles and all that. So, you know, I was I was ready to go to jail and then come back as a hero. You know, this is all this. But when you're young, you're really stupid about this stuff. You're just looking at the glamorous aspect of the, what could be, but, you know, you really don't try to figure out what it, might be like to be constrained in in a, a dark uh, place with with very little interaction with other people uh, you know it's just <laughs> yeah you put it to the back of your mind it's not going to happen to me absolutely well it didn't thank god but yeah. uh, i i got lucky in, in many respects yeah 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 and w- were you married at, at this point while training in Moscow, I had actually, I had a steady girlfriend. When I was moved to Moscow, I broke up with her. There was really no room f- uh, for her in my life. What happened though, when I, when I briefly came back from Moscow, went back to Berlin, she managed to just like sort of sense that I'm back and uh, looked me up and found me and uh, that was, you know, living, living two years single without any female companionship. And here comes this girl that I was in love with once. And she said, do you still love me? Now, what do you think a young man will answer at that point? 
sounds sounds oh. like she she would have made a good agent if she managed to track you down as well. <laughs> yeah, but psychologically she wasn't strong enough. So so that uh, the the KGB allowed me to to marry her, and they had all kinds of ideas how we could uh, keep the marriage alive, such as you know meetings in uh, third countries. But you know this they they preferred to send couples. But the idea of having a family back home also gives gives you some leverage as as the uh, intelligence organization. It typically makes it harder to defect for the agent. And I actually also had a son then, and which um, uh, made uh, the uh, meeting in third countries sort of uh, next to impossible, which we never did. Uh, so yeah, that's all a bunch of bunch of like really weird parts of my story. That you know, if you want to read up on it, uh, the, my memoir is published. And we'll we'll put a link to the um, to the book in 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 the show notes. How did Moscow compare to Berlin? Uh, it, it felt a lot bigger, particularly those the big avenues. Uh, the, the, the Russian name is called Prospekt, Leninsky Prospekt, uh, Leningradsky Prospekt. It's like when when you uh, leave Sheremetyevo Airport and get in a car and you're going towards downtown, you you you're driving alongside of one of those and you got them Stalin Stalinist type buildings left and right and they were big. And it looked monstrous and very impressive. And then, you know, you pass by Red Square and it's pretty and it, it's just like it has a lot of tradition and it's well, it was and probably still is, well kept and maintained. Very impressive. But, and here's the big but, I spent two years living there by myself and I investigated, and I, I had to, uh, part of that had to do, I had to, as an, as an agent, you have to get to know the playground uh, that you're operating in. That means you have to know the city. And I did a lot of walking around, and I went to the back of those uh, glorious buildings, and those backyards were nothing to be proud of, muddy, not well kept playgrounds in in dis in disrepair uh, and this is where the elite lived pretty pretty sad. I had to take care of my own food. Uh, I was not catered to okay I had to go shopping and so I went to the quote unquote supermarkets and meat was a rarity a lot of canned fish uh, and uh, lots of mineral water. The one thing that you could always get uh, was good bread, and it was always fresh. But but generally, once you're somewhat integrated in life, it was anything but glorious. And and I quickly understood why Russians or, uh, or Soviet citizens always looked at East Germany as the showpiece of the uh, Eastern Bloc. And it was indeed by comparison, and and that was um, that was uh, eye-opening. Now we rationalized this. It's easy to rationalize. The Soviet Union really got hammered in World War II, right? 
But so were other places, like West Germany didn't, uh, wasn't uh, a walk in the park after 1945, and uh, it, it uh, bloomed within five, six, seven years. So, um, but again, you know, when, when you don't have enough comparisons to make your judgment, uh, it's easy to rationalize. And progress was being made and progress was being made in East Germany. We didn't know that that progress was built on, on a foundation that, that, was, uh, that had cracks in it, economically speaking. Yeah, yeah. So while you're there, you're, you're provided with an identity for you to use in the U.S., which is effectively the name that you you use nowadays. Right. Yeah, we we had a uh, one attempt to uh, gain a birth certificate of a of an individual who passed away at a young age, and that failed. And then w- they finally were able to acquire a birth certificate. It's it, it's an authentic was an authentic and a copy of a birth certificate of, uh, for Jack Barsky, and that's the identity that uh, I finally used to become a U.S. citizen or acquire the documents that showed that I was a U.S. citizen. And we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters, help keep us on the air then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Thanks again to all our financial supporters of the podcast, but a special thanks to our Politburo-level Patreons, who are Sam Hardwick, 
Nicholas Butter and Jeffrey Jones who are supporting us at 30 US dollars per month. Thank you. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.